Many times we can be in church and it can seem great, but then you get out into the real world and afterwards it can all seem like it was a little bit fake. You're singing some great favorite song, Lift High the Cross. Then you get home and you're spending the afternoon lifting high those boxes you've got to stow in the attic. Or you get to work and someone slams you in some meeting like they are high on power. And that's not even to mention all the global news like Netanyahu's recent speech to Congress or that interview from prison of that Indian rapist who said that when Indian women are raped, it's their fault for staying out too late. And you get out of church and you catch up on the news or you face the daily grind and it's not just that old saying that church would be great if it weren't for all the people. It's that church is great until you face reality, and then it can seem fake. Ever felt like that? I have. Sometimes people think that those who work in churches don't ever face hassles, a nice, easy job working with Christians all the time. I love the ministry, but I can tell you there's a reason why something like 50% of seminarians give up a ministry within five years, one statistic has it. Though I've heard that 37.5% of statistics are made up on the spot. So <laughs> It's tough out there. I, I don't want to talk about my family, but I can tell you that family health things have been tough too. Just saying, I felt this disconnect that I think many of us feel between church, as it seems, when we gather, which is great, and then real life. Now, my friends, here's what happens if we don't answer this challenge. People will either give up on their churches, or they'll retreat to some sort of religious fantasy world. That's why you get people who quote Bible verses at you out of context when they're seeing that you're going through some difficulty. They're not trying to be mean, they're just not sure how to deal with this disconnect either. So they retreat to sort of, you know, Lord bless you and keep you while they pass by on the other side. Kind of Christian version of the Star Trek live long and prosper, the Vulcan greeting. Great, but not real. Fake. What's the answer? Paul tells us in our passage uh, this morning, Romans 5, verses 12 to 14. I'll start reading in verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Here's what I think this means. Rejoice with real, unshakable confidence, even in the world, because we are in Christ. That's my thesis statement this morning. Everything's going to hang off this one sentence, so let me repeat it for us. Rejoice with real, unshakable confidence, even in the world, because we are in Christ. So let me explain 
why I think this passage is saying that, and then we'll apply it to all of our lives. First, I think this is saying that because of the context and the content. The context is this section of Romans from chapter 5 through to 8, which is all about assurance. So Paul is showing us why, because of what Jesus has done on the cross, we Christians can be absolutely 100% convinced of our new, established, and permanent, gracious relationship to God. So he summarized the first part of Romans with a single phrase at the beginning of chapter 5, since therefore having been justified by faith. So the whole of the first four chapters of Romans were to prove justification by faith. That is, proving that if we put our personal, committed, radical, total trust in Jesus, then God declares us right with the righteousness of Christ. And now then, Paul is showing us that this glorious truth has certain amazing practical consequences. And they all can be summarized as assurance. He connects that theme together by finishing every single section with the same phrase, through our Lord Jesus Christ, over and over again, through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation. Nothing can separate us from the love of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, however, he begins a new subsection. So he's been talking about rejoicing, boasting, literally, courageous confidence, and saying that is his main theme now for the next few chapters. But now he enters a new subsection that runs from verse 12 to 21 of chapter 5. And this new part is all about union. We are either in Adam or we are in Christ. There's a comparison that goes throughout these verses. We're either united to Adam or we're united to Christ. Now, when you read these verses, it can feel like Paul is talking over your head. It reminds me of the preschool boy eating an apple in the back of the car. Daddy, he said, why is my apple turning brown? His father explained, well, after the skin is exposed to the air, the PPO enzymes and the chloroplast rapidly oxidize the phenolic compounds and the oquinones produce the brown color. A long silence followed. Daddy, are you talking to me? These verses do appear tangled, but actually Paul is saying, let me tell you a story, a story that is global, in Adam or in Christ. And the question comes, why is he telling us this story? And the answer is because, because he's telling us how it's possible to rejoice with brave courage, to find church really, truly great, and for it not to be a bunch of malarkey, fake, not great, in the real world. Well, Paul says. Now then, you may have thought we got too excited. All that joy stuff was too high and not real. And you, you just think I'm trying to get you hyped up for a few minutes so you can kind of survive through the week until you get your fill up next week. But no, actually, this is real. And so the therefore of the start of verse 12 is the most important word to underline in this whole section. He is saying, because all this rejoicing, verse 11, rejoicing God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, Paul, how? Well, because, because of this great global story that is truly true, really real. So now he's giving us a foundation for this confidence, this rejoicing, which is about this union with Christ, so that we have truly trusted him, have a rejoicing that cannot be shaken, therefore, even in the real world. Now, how is that the case? 
when there is rape or disease? Well, Paul says, because. Let's look at the facts. Let's tell the story, the real story. Now, the way he says this is admittedly a little puzzling. Uh, The uh, renowned author C.S. Lewis once said that he loved Paul, but he wished that Paul had learnt to write. And verse, this section certainly illustrates that point. So verse 12 introduces Paul's theme with just as. But then there is not a so also until most people think verse 18. And in between you have a long digression. And actually verses 15 to 17 are a second digression within the first digression, which is terrible style. Uh, but then Paul was not trying to be stylish. He was a passionate man pumping out content. And so he gets to verse 12, and then he says, oh, okay, hold on here, there'll be an objection that I need to answer, and he answers that one. And then there's another objection he needs to answer, and then he gets back to the main point again in verse 18. So verse 12 is actually simply saying this, you think all the bad stuff in the world makes rejoicing at church look fake? Think again. Actually, all the bad stuff in the world proves that rejoicing at church is unshakable. Death? Yep. Evil and sin? Yep. Everyone sinning? Yep. It all gives us a solid basis for rejoicing when we are in Christ, for it's a comparison. Now, uh, some of us will know that verse 12 is a very important verse for teaching what's called the doctrine of original sin. Paul's saying that we're either in Adam, who is not only the example of our sinning, but that actually in him we are also sinners. Now, there are long technical debates about all this, but fundamentally, it's not an easy thing to understand from a philosophical point of view, but it is a very easy thing to accept from a practical standpoint. Let me put it like this. The doctrine of original sin is one Christian teaching for which there is a lot of practical evidence. You know, put up your hand if you've sinned at least one time in your life, you know. Uh, Look at it like this. If you take a coin and you drop it out of a window and it falls to the ground sometimes, but not always, you don't think there's a law. But if it happens every every time, you may have stumbled upon the law of gravity. Similarly, every single time in every place, people act in Adam, the law of original sin. They inherit his sinful nature. But not only that, they are in him as sinners, all sinned. This idea of representative, again, a very difficult idea, but look at it like this. Say uh, you're a sports fan, and the Bears or the Bulls lose uh, this weekend, and you're talking around the water cooler with someone else. How do you feel about the fact that they lost sports fan? You, You feel terrible. In some sense, they represent you. Or the way an ambassador represents a country. And so Paul says, verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. In other words, if we object to how God treats us as in Adam, well, think of this, Paul says. He treats us exactly the same in Christ. If you remove one, why not remove the other? 
But then we have uh, his digression in verses 13 and 14. What is Paul saying here? The key, actually, is simply to realize that there's a distinction between sinning and transgression. So this is the way he's thinking, I believe. All sinned, but you only transgress if you break a particular known law. So if you don't break a particular known law, you're not a transgressor at that point, though that doesn't stop you being a sinner. So verses 13 and 14 are answering this potential objection of someone saying, well, now hold on there, Paul. The law of Moses was not given during Adam's time. In fact, it came a long while afterwards. So how can you say we're all transgressors when there's no law to transgress? And Paul's answer is, well, Adam was a transgressor because he broke the law in the Garden of Eden when God told him not to eat the fruit. But he's also a sinner. That is, he was in rebellion against God's, uh, against God's good rule, and he has fallen short of the glory of God. And so right from Adam to now, the whole trajectory of the world has been off kilter. The law of Moses did not change that. It just defined it, made it obvious. Show what particular kind of sinning people were doing by showing what particular kind of law they had broken. It's like there's some Bible nerd at the back of the class who breaks Paul's preaching flow and says, hey, hold on, how about Moses? And then Paul says, well, okay, let me explain how that fits in. And then he hints how he's going to come back full circle to where he started when he gets to verse 18 by saying in this evocative phrase, this beautiful phrase, like Adam who was a type of the one who was to come. So there's all this death. You go to church. You sing, how great thou art. You sing, rejoice, the Lord is king. You sing, before the throne of God above. You pray, you hear a story, you meet your friends, and then you go home, you go to work, you watch the news, and someone dies. Yes, death. Hey, Paul. Surely that undermines everything you're saying. Surely that puts a damper on your assurance drug. Stop drinking the Kool-Aid, Paul, and come back down to earth where there is death. Let's get real here, and there is evil. Haven't you been following what's going on with terrorism recently? Look, Paul, we don't live in the 90s anymore. There are security issues all over the place. How on earth can we be secure or assured? Let me talk to you about death, Paul says. Death is universal. You know why? Because sin is universal. We are in Adam. You want a global story? You want to get out of the bubble and encounter something that has an impact on the whole world? Let's talk about death. That's something everyone has in common. There's a little-known painting from the time of the French Revolutionary period that shows someone giving birth right over a grave. Someone is born, they've just started to live, right? Yes, and it's equally true, they've just started to die. The clock is ticking. You want to get real, says Paul? I'll give you real. You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Death, universal. But why? Because sin is equally universal. There's this global story in Adam. We're we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. This is the diagnosis, the human condition. It's not being negative, it's being real. I'll give you real, says Paul. 
You think the news this week is bad? You think what happened at college, at work this week is bad? Okay, let's make this as big and wide as the whole world. Death everywhere, sin everywhere. Okay, real enough? How about that? Someone says, well, what about Moses? Yep, so it's Paul got that covered. Now, back to Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. The word type comes from a mark, an impression, a seal. It's used to mean a shadow or indication or thing pointing in a certain direction. Adam, all that death, all that sin. You you, you know what, says Paul? Okay, let's get radical. Adam is a sign of hope. He's a type of what? Disease? Death? Evil? Yes, but far more. Actually, he's a type of the one who is to come. How great is the mercy of God that even Adam is a shadow of the Christ. Look at it, look at it like this. Every time you face evil, and I say it strongly, your own sin. Every time you face death, and I say it strongly, your own death or the death of your loved ones. Every time you go out of church and face the perplexing realities of an unsafe world, you can, if you think right, be doubly, trebly assured of the unshakable joy you can have even in the world when you are in Christ. For all the bad stuff in the world proves that rejoicing at church is unshakable. Why? Because even that, all of that, all that Adam began and us in Adam, all of that is a sign, a type pointing to the one who is to come. As in Adam, so in Christ. You say, that's incredible. I say not incredible, literally meaning unbelievable, but indelible. That is, it is hardwired into reality as a sign, a type, a thing pointing somewhere to get us ready to receive the one who is to come, the Christ Jesus himself, as our representative. Not of death now, but of life. That's not just my story or your story or even our story as a church. This is the story. The templates of all stories. It's intended to lead us to the one who is to come. So all that is why I think this is saying rejoice with real unshakable confidence even in the world. Because we are in Christ. Now let me tell you a story to illustrate this before we apply it together. The story comes from the book Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand. I haven't seen the movie, I'm told it's good, but the book has a part in it that is only hinted at in the movie. It's a story of how an Olympic runner is captured in World War II and goes to be a prisoner in a prisoner of war camp. Beforehand, his plane crashes in the Pacific and he floats with two others on a raft for the longest ever recorded time. Sharks circling them, they waist down from 150 pounds to about 60 pounds. One time a plane attacks the raft and the former Olympic runner jumps into the water far enough down so he's not hit by the bullets and sharks begin to attack him. He took a survival course that told him to punch a shark in the nose when attacked, so he does that. 
He resurfaces. The plane comes back again. He dives down again. Several sharks now attack him. He punches them and kicks them and survives. The stories of the prisoner of war camp are so despicable, I hesitate to repeat them in detail from the pulpit. Let me just say this. He experienced the depth of human depravity. During that time, he promised God that if he ever survived, he would serve him. After the war, his life began to unravel. He got married and his marriage was in trouble. His wife finally took him to a Billy Graham crusade. Experiencing terrifying flashbacks, haunting memories, hates, the gospel came through powerful and clear. The only sermon that Jesus ever wrote was the title of that sermon. Jesus bending down in the sand, writing in the sand, your sins recorded and will be revealed on a massive screen. Who is left to judge? Who is there who is without sin? But there is a righteousness that can be yours, a righteousness of Christ that can be yours today. He turns to leave the tent. A flashback hit him, and he remembered that he had promised to serve God. And at that moment, the preacher said, It is God speaking to you. Give your life to him. He went home, threw out his alcohol stash, threw out his girly magazines, and spent his life joyfully serving Jesus. The worst of the world is not cause for doubting the gospel. It is a reason to rejoice with real, unshakable confidence even in the world because we are in Christ. So let's then apply this by asking ourselves this week in small groups in our quiet times these two questions. First, if it is true that death is because we are in Adam, because we all sinned, what specific sins are there of which we must repent? The wages of sin is death. Make no mistake, sin has consequences. Would you ask God to have mercy on your soul? Turn from greed, ambition, hate, bitterness, and let him fill you with his sweet grace. Second, if it is true that life is because we are in Christ, How can we develop our union with Jesus through prayer this week? Martin Luther spent at least two hours a day in prayer. Adoniram Judson, the great missionary to Burma, rose at midnight, three in the morning, and six each night to pray. E.M. Bounds said this, 
No man can do a great and enduring work for God who is not a man of prayer, and no man can be a man of prayer who does not give much time to prayer. Union with Christ in prayer is the life force for changing the world. And so we rejoice with real, unshakable confidence, even in the world, because we are in Christ. Let us pray. Our Lord, as we come now to communion, we pray that we would develop our union with you, our relationship to you, and so be increasingly confident, even in the world, because we are in Christ. Amen.